The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. my privilege to bring greetings to you this morning from your brothers and sisters in Christ at Proclamation Presbyterian Church in Mount Joy. Uh, as Keith mentioned, you sent us out uh, about six years ago. It was about five and a half years ago that we had our first service on a Sunday evening, and we are forever grateful for the support and the encouragement and the love that you have given to us and shown us from the very beginning. Uh, on a personal note, my family and I also are very grateful Uh, My wife and my oldest son, Luke, were here at the early service. Uh, Unfortunately, they are not here now, uh, nor are my four daughters. It's only me that you'll get to see this morning. But we are thankful for the wonderful love and support that you have shown us and that you did show us during our 13 years here. We miss you, we love you, and it is a joy to be back with you to see so many familiar faces as well as as, uh, so many new faces and uh, it's, a, it's a joy to be part of uh, something like a pulpit swap this morning. I don't know how many of you know, but Dr. Rogers is preaching at Proclamation uh, this morning. And after the first service, one of my friends from Westminster came up to me and said, it's good to see that you are so trusting, so confident to have Dr. Rogers preach at Proclamation. And I hadn't even thought of that. I do hope it goes well there this morning. I do believe that our people will be greatly fed by Dr. Rogers and are eager to hear him. And I pray that you will be blessed by the Lord as well. John Newton once said, the more we are convinced of our utter depravity and inability from last to first, the more excellent will Jesus appear. It is the whole or the healthy that may give the physician a good word, but is the sick alone who know how to prize him. So it's my aim this morning to proclaim, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, to help us see how sick we are apart from Christ, that we might prize him all the more. So with that in mind, let us turn our attention to the word of God this morning. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, It's on page 973 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. I encourage you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. I will be reading starting at verse 15 and continuing through the end of the chapter. Galatians chapter 3. Hear the word of our God this morning. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come 
to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let us pray. O great God, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us this morning, that the Spirit would fall on all who hear the Word, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your law, that your Spirit would enable us to behold the glory of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. May you be honored and glorified today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are old enough to remember the investment firm Smith Barney and their commercial from 40 years ago, if, if you're not old enough, you can look it up on YouTube later today. But in that commercial, you had a distinguished-looking gentleman. He's wearing a suit and a bow tie, and he's sitting in this elegant restaurant surrounded by luxury, and he looks at the camera, and he says this, good investments don't walk up, bite you on the nose, and say, we're here. Instead, he said, finding them takes good, old-fashioned, hard work research the kind they do at Smith Barney. Smith Barney, they make money the old-fashioned way. They earn it. And we like to earn things, don't we? We like to accomplish things. We like to have that sense of accomplishment. Uh, It was about a year ago that my family and I had the privilege to go on a vacation. We were celebrating our oldest son Luke's graduation from high school. Some of you might think it's crazy to think that he's now a high school graduate. Uh, But we enjoyed that time away. And one of the things that we did on our vacation as a family was we climbed Mount Washington. It's one of the highest mountains on the eastern side of the United States. And as we got near the top, we were feeling that sense of accomplishment. And I was told that as you got to the top, you would see a parking lot filled with cars because you can also drive to the top of Mount Washington. And in fact, you can get those bumper stickers. This car climbed Mount Washington as if that's any kind of accomplishment. (laughs) But I said to my kids as we neared the top, as we got to the parking lot, I said, I think the rule is that those who climb Mount Washington are free to slash the tires of the cars that drove (laughs) to the top. I think that should be the rule. We didn't do that, but I think that should be the rule. But we like to accomplish things, to earn things. We like to think that if we work hard, if we do good things, we'll be rewarded. And in some ways, some aspects of life, that is indeed true. So if you work hard on the practice field this summer, you may be rewarded by making the team or getting more playing time. 
If you work hard in the classroom, you may be rewarded with better grades or you may earn the scholarship. If you work hard in the office, you may be rewarded with a pay raise or a promotion. But that kind of thinking, we earn what we get, can be hazardous to our spiritual health if we allow it to shape our understanding of how a person is made right with our holy God, of how a person can get to heaven. Is it through good, old-fashioned, hard work? Do you earn it? In this letter to the churches of Galatia, Paul has been working hard to make it clear that the answer to that question is a loud and resounding no. Paul has proclaimed that justification, being made right with God, the forgiveness of our sins, being declared righteous in God's sight, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and through faith alone, not through obedience to the law of Moses. Indeed, the blessings of the promise that God made to Abraham also come to Abraham's children, both Jew and Gentile, through faith and not by works. This is the gospel that Paul received from Jesus Christ himself. And Paul continues to proclaim the gospel and explains its blessings here in our passage this morning. And his point is that all these blessings promised by God to his people are freely given to those who trust in Jesus, the seed to whom the promise referred Beloved, the whole basis of your life, both the here and now, right now, and the eternal forever is a gift, an unearned, undeserved gift. You get the opposite of what you deserve. God's promise is given to those who believe. And the better that you understand that and embrace it, the more freely and fully you will live and love for the glory of God and the good of your neighbors. This is what Paul's getting at in this passage. Or as Dr. Riken says it, God deals with his people according to his promise, not according to your performance. So if you are a child of God, God deals with you according to his promise and not according to your performance. I want you to hear that loud and clear. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning, you cannot void God's promise by your failure any more than you can earn it by your performance, by your obedience. Salvation is given, not earned. God's promise is given to those who believe, not earned by those who work. That's what I hope and pray we will see and grasp again this morning. I pray it will hit home in your heart as we draw it out from this text in Galatians 3, as we consider the relationship between the law and the promise. And so we'll start with the promise. God gave salvation to Abraham by a promise, not by the law, and this promise was fulfilled in Christ. Paul begins by using a very simple illustration, verse 15. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And the most obvious example of this, I believe, is a will, a last will and testament. And just as no one can change his legal will after his death, after it has been ratified in a sense, 
That is just how unchangeable God's promise to save by faith is indeed. God gave his promise to Abraham. And then 430 years later, he gave the law to Moses. But this law that was given later does not void the promise that God gave earlier. The law was never meant to be a means to earn our way into God's family. The law was never intended to give life. The law was not designed to do this, and it was not able to do this. In fact, we could say that if the law justifies, then Abraham was not justified. Since he lived long before the law, how could he be justified by something that he did not even have? But God says in his word, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God deals with his people according to his promise and not according to their performance. God made that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He made it again in Genesis chapter 15. And you might remember that familiar passage from the word of God in Genesis 15 where God ratifies his covenant with Abraham in that unique covenant ceremony. He tells Abraham to gather some animals and cut them in half and make a pathway between them. And that seems very strange to us today. That's not how we ratify our covenants. But that's what was done in Abraham's time. How do we do it today? Maybe today we, we sign our name and maybe we have a notary there to witness it and to confirm it. Or, or maybe if we're younger, we pinky swear. Or maybe if we're like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, we cut our hands and we share our blood with one another. But it's very different then. Abraham knew exactly what God's telling him to do. This was a common practice in the day. God says, get these animals, cut them in half, and both parties would walk between them as a way of ratifying that covenant. But that's not what happened, is it? In Genesis 15, we read that Abraham fell into a deep sleep and darkness came upon him. And then The most holy God alone passed between the animals. It was as if to say, a a very visible demonstration, as if to say, let this be done to me. Let the slaughtering of these animals be done to me if I fail to keep my covenant. God is saying this to Abraham. But then, because Abraham did not walk between the animals, God alone, it was also as if to say to Abraham, Abraham, let this be done to me also if you fail to keep my covenant. And beloved, God cannot fail and you cannot succeed. So God made this promise knowing you would fail, knowing that he would have to send and give his son to save. And that is exactly what we see at the cross of Jesus Christ. Our performance was not good enough. We failed to obey the law. And so God, according to his gracious eternal plan, made atonement for our sins through the death of his own son. Jesus died so that we could live. Salvation is given, not earned. Now Paul points us to Jesus here. He points us to Jesus by saying that the true fulfillment of the promise was in the one offspring, Jesus Christ. Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of that earliest promise we see in Genesis chapter 3, the first hope of the gospel where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Jesus indeed is that one offspring, the true offspring of Abraham. And it is through the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the reign of King Jesus, that true eternal blessing of God comes to the nations and comes to us today. God gave salvation to Abraham by a promise, not by the law. And this promise was fulfilled in Christ. So then we may ask, why then did God give the law? It's the precise question that Paul asks in verses 19 through 25. And if you are familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, you may remember that the confession summarizes three kinds of Old Testament laws for us. We have the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. We have the ceremonial law, which is given to guide the religious worship of God's people in the Old Testament. And then we also had the civil or the judicial laws that were given to govern the nation of Israel during that time. And we recognize that today we are no no longer held to those ceremonial or civil judicial laws, but we are still bound to obey the moral law. But we do not obey the moral law to earn salvation. In that sense, we are free from the law as a means of salvation. But we do obey the law. Why? Because we love Jesus. Because we want to please the Savior who bought us. It's our great desire to please our loving Heavenly Father. And the law shows us what is pleasing to Him. Verse 19, Paul asks, why then the law? If the promise is given to those who believe, why then the law? And Paul answers for us, the law was added because of transgressions. He says later in verse 21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But that was not the case. That could not be done. We could never earn life through the law. Instead, the law was added to help us realize our need for life. This is what John Calvin referred to as the first use of the law. That the law is a mirror. You hold it up and it shows us our sin and it also shows us our need for a Savior. It helps us see how sick we are that it might drive us to Christ. That we might prize the Savior. Chris Walker helped me understand this section of this passage with an illustration uh, that he used that comes from, I believe, a member of the church here. There was a member of the church who has, uh, was told by a professional that he had mold in his house and that he needed to get it cleaned. And, and this person didn't know it, hadn't seen it until one day when he went down into his basement with a bright flashlight and, and shined it in the corner of the basement. And there indeed he saw on the drywall those spots of mold all over so what's the solution when you see that? You know, if, if it's me, maybe I think the solution is turn off the light, right? Out of sight, out of mind, the, the, the simple solution. But would that make the mold go away? If the law shows us our sin, we don't just turn it off. We don't just ignore the law, pretend that it doesn't exist. That won't make our sin go away. It won't make us innocent. It won't cleanse us. It won't make us healthy to ignore the problem, well, how about we just shine the light on the mold? Maybe if we point it for a long time, will that make it go away? Will that clean it up? No, just as we cannot make ourselves holy by following the law. Instead, we need to let the law drive us to Christ 
to the only Savior, God's promise of salvation. The law cannot save. The law cannot give life. Instead, what it does is it shows us our sin and it shows us what we deserve for our sin. Indeed, the law shows us that we deserve the full weight of God's curse, that the full weight of God's curse ought to fall down upon every violator of any one of the stipulations of the law. Earlier, Paul wrote in this chapter, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Friend, I wonder this morning if you have a sense, if you believe that you personally are guilty, that you personally are held accountable to the law, that you personally deserve and have earned the curse of the holy God because of your sin. The Bible indicates that the full weight of the wrath of the holy and righteous God should indeed fall on every violator of any one of the stipulations of his law. I think we ought to pause and consider that for a moment because if we're honest, we will admit that we typically think the very opposite of that. We tend to think that as long as I'm a good person, as long as I am a kind person, as long as I do my best to do what is right, as long as I don't commit a mortal sin, then God certainly will love me and let me into heaven. But the word of God tells us that if you keep the whole law but fail in one point, you have, been, you have become guilty of all of it and that the wages of sin is death. So consider this with me just for a moment, beloved. This means that if you have ever put a person before God, you deserve the full weight of God's wrath upon you. If you have ever done something good for others to see so that they might then think better of you, you deserve the full weight of the wrath of God upon you. If you have ever done anything good for any reason other than the glory of God, you deserve the full weight of the wrath of God upon you. If you have ever lied, even a small white lie, we dismiss lies so easily. If you have ever lied, you deserve the full weight of the wrath of God upon you. If you have ever been angry at someone without cause, and I'm not sure that being cut off in traffic is a cause for righteous anger. If you've ever been angry at someone without cause, without righteous anger, you deserve the full weight of the wrath of God upon you. If you have ever complained, and how easy is it for us to complain today? It's so hot out there. Complaining may be the most acceptable sin in the church today. If you have ever complained, 
You deserve the full weight of the righteous God upon you. If you have ever disobeyed or dishonored your parents, if you have ever stolen time from your employer, if you have ever stolen money, if you ever have looked at someone with lustful intent or gossiped or even had unkind thoughts that didn't even make it out of your mouth, if you have ever done the right thing for the wrong reason, you deserve the full weight of the wrath of the holy God upon you. Beloved, do you see that the law shows us how sick we are? It shows us the depth of our need. We need a physician. We need a rescue. The law law is designed to help us see that what we have earned, what we have merited, what we have accomplished, what we deserve is the full weight of God's wrath upon us. You deserve this not someone else. Every one of you sitting in this room this morning, without exception, you deserve this. And not the person or the people that sin differently than you in ways that you, the self-appointed judge, think are worse, but you personally and individually Apart from Christ, we are infinitely guilty before an infinitely holy God. Beloved, I am guilty and I need a Savior. We need a rescue. We need a Savior. We are unable to save ourselves. We need someone outside of ourselves to come and save us. We have a problem that we cannot fix on our own, and it makes us cry out, who will deliver us from this body of death? Who will deliver us from the curse of the law? And we say, thanks be to God. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. In his body on the tree, he bore the crushing weight of sin where our own hand should have been. So when Jesus died on the cross, he was suffering the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Beloved, this is Jesus, the sinless, spotless, undefiled Lamb of God, the beautiful one, the glorious one. It is he who took the full weight of God's wrath upon himself. He is the one who drank that cup of fury dry, the cup that had been poured because of what we had done, not what he had done what you had done, what I had done. And Jesus took it from our hands and he drank it himself so that we can live, so that we can be forgiven. But we need more than just forgiveness. We also need a savior who himself perfectly kept the law so that his righteousness can be credited, counted to us. Paul says we were held captive under the law until the coming faith should be revealed. And that coming faith is the coming of Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. And by his perfect obedience to the law, we can be counted righteous in God's sight. Abraham believed God, the scriptures tell us, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And still today, God's promise of eternal life is given to those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. The God who created you, the God who has given you life and sustains your life, the God who this very moment is giving you every breath 
that you breathe, the God who is king over your life, he says in his word that it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And friend, when we die, when we stand before God in the judgment, God will not compare us to others. He will not inquire about your sincerity Nor will he cut you any slack because you tried your hardest to be a good person and do what is right. None of that matters. What matters? The only thing that matters is this. Did you trust in his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Did you put your faith in Jesus? You know, on that day of judgment, God will not be handing out any participation trophies. You don't get in just because you lived. It is as if God is keeping score and not everyone wins. The only way that you will receive the promise of eternal life is if you are united to Christ by faith. There are only two kinds of people in the world today. Only two kinds of people here with us this morning those who need to be rescued from their sin, their enslavement to the law, and those who have been rescued. And friend, if you need to be rescued, you may be offended at what I have said today. You might not believe what I've said today. You might not be able to understand how could I ever deserve the full weight of the wrath of God for something as seemingly small as a complaint or a burst of anger or a small lie. And if that's the way you are thinking, I would pray that God would open your eyes that you might see the majesty and the beauty and the glory and the holiness of the God who made you and is giving you life right now. And I would pray that you would take that offense to the cross of our Savior Jesus Christ and let the flow of his crimson blood bury your pride and wash you clean and raise you up to new life in Christ. And beloved, if you have been rescued. If you sit here as one who has been rescued through the gracious work of our Savior Jesus Christ, then you need no other argument. You need no other plea to be made right with God. You need not try to earn it. Your faith has found a resting place. It's not in device. It's not in creed. It is in the eternal Son of God, the one who is your ally, Though you were his enemy, your defender, though you were guilty, your justifier, though you were inexcusable, beloved, this friend of sinners is your friend. And he calls you by name. He calls you brother, sister, friend. And this Jesus has willingly, willingly laid down his life for you. No one takes it from him. He willingly laid down his life for you. And if you can imagine it, if you can believe it, he has made you his own. Paul says at the end of this passage that you are Christ. You now belong to him and all your guilt and all your shame has been taken away and you have no condemnation to fear or dread through faith in Jesus. You have been made right with God and you are righteous in his sight. Righteousness is not by the law. It is not earned. It is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. I imagine many of you know the name LeBron James, whether you're a sports fan or not. 
He's a pretty good basketball player. The first time that he won an NBA championship back in 2012 when he was playing for the Miami Heat, Nike made up a shirt just for him with this slogan printed on it, earned, not given. Cross the chest. Earned, not given. Beloved, the very opposite of your greatest joy, your greatest victory. You belong to Christ. You are his forever. Why? Given, not earned. Given, not earned. Now I ask in closing, what effect does this have on us? When we understand this, the good news of the gospel, and we embrace it, what effect does it have on us? And just two quick things. First of all, it kills pride. It absolutely destroys pride. It absolutely leaves no place at all for self-righteousness. No place at all for a holier-than-thou attitude. No place at all for an I'm-better-than-you attitude. You are not better than others. What do you have that you did not receive? Given, not earned. This kills pride. And when you don't think that you're better than others, you will be more likely to love them and serve them, to put their needs before your own. You will love people created in the image of God for the glory of God. And then secondly, this fosters the opposite of pride, humility, gratitude, and leads us to worship our Savior Christ. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not the healthy, but the sick. And so we can admit, we can be honest with our sin, and we can admit that we are not good, moral, upright people. Beloved, we can admit that there are times that we willingly sin, even as God's redeemed people. There are times when we choose disobedience over obedience because we love our sin more than we love our Savior. And Jesus came for us to save us and to rescue us so we can admit that and we can rejoice knowing that we have been rescued. We have been made new. We are Christ's. Paul Tripp explains that what, what often happens to us in our Christian life as, as, as time passes from that moment when maybe we first understood the gospel. Can you remember that moment, that time in your life when you first recognized the depth of your need and the bounty of God's provision through Jesus Christ to save you and to rescue you from sin and death and darkness? But over time, as time passes and that moment becomes further and further away from us, the tendency can be to drift, to migrate away from that neediness to self-righteousness, we lose that sense of neediness. And I believe God sent me here this morning to remind you of that. But we lose that sense of neediness and we begin to tell ourselves that we are the good people. We're part of the people that have arrived. We, we got it right. We know what's right. We believe what's right. We strive to live what is right and we begin to look down on others. And we begin to look down on those who are still enslaved to their sin, dead in sin, forgetting that it has been given, not earned. 
We lose sight of the fact that our righteous standing before the holy God has absolutely nothing to do with our performance. Absolutely nothing to do with anything that we have done at all. Beloved, our sins give us no inherent right at all to have a seat at the table of Christ. His is the kingdom and we are the guests. And the only reason that we are invited in is because God kept the covenant promise that he initiated. Because he sent his only son to die in our place. And that same Jesus now sustains our lives and our faith every moment by his grace. Beloved, you who deserve everlasting hell now have Christ. Amen? And it is this Christ who has made you his own through the giving of his own life. You are his. So may you prize him. May you cherish him. May you treasure him. May you love him above all else. Beloved, what is the slogan over your heart? What is the slogan over your heart that will fill you with gratitude and cause you to burst forth with love for your beautiful Savior? It is not good old-fashioned hard work. We earn it. It is not earned, not given. Oh, beloved, no, it is indeed given, not earned. All glory be to Christ, our beautiful Savior. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, may you drive home by the power of the Holy Spirit the truth of your word into our hearts and lives and so transform us into the image of your son. May we be conformed to his image. May thanksgiving abound to you that grace may abound more and more to us and to those who know us. We pray in the matchless and mighty name of our risen Savior and coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.